Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. everyone. Quick trigger warning. We do briefly talk about uh, sex trafficking in this episode. So if that's not something that you're up for listening to, please check out some of our other 340 something episodes uh, to hear something else and maybe come back at another time. Uh, Check out the categories on the website. There's a lot of different uh, topics that we have stories, stories, topics of stories that we have talked about previously. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Stormy. Stormy King has been referred to as a destiny creator. That sounds fun. I like that. Thanks. (laughs) She is a multi-hyphenate mindset coach and has risen from the ashes of a traumatic childhood. I feel that. Um, So she was born to a drug addict and raised in 28 different homes uh, to traffic. You were, well, we'll get into it, but you were traffic. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Holy crap. Um, She has been a fighter since her youth. According to the system, she was known as the quote unquote throwaway child destined to be a statistic, which you're here. So you're not. She has decided to create her own destiny. Her life journey has provided her with insight, intuition, and innovation to become a multi six-figure entrepreneur and mindset coach. Stormy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. I was told by people, they love my commentaries when I'm reading the biography because I'm just like, you know, I, I know this because I see the application, right? So I know what we're going to talk about. Every time I'm just like, holy moly, people, I have some really amazing people who have been through some shit that comes on this podcast. So yes, uh, it is an explicit podcast. So you can swear. <laughs> I love it. I love sometimes it. People, right at home. Yeah. Sometimes people will swear and they're like, I don't know if I should have said that. I'm like, oh, it's explicit. You could say all the things. Uh, so Stormy, I would love to have you take us back to the beginning um, because you have been, you have a journey and you have been through some stuff. So what was it like? You were put into the system, uh, which a lot of so, people don't realize is a broken system. So it is a very broken system and, and, and still to this day is mm-hmm. a broken system. Um, and it was even more so 47 years ago. I'm dating myself here now, but um, I came into the system. Uh, I was born, my mother was a drug addict. And um, so I was born addicted to drugs and um my mom and my dad actually stole me away from the hospital and took me to clear to another state where I quickly caught eyes of the the department of human services here in the states and um started the journey of in and out of the foster care system uh and my my bio mom had a tendency that whenever she found a new boyfriend or um, had a new child, I would end up back into, into the system. 
um, you know, screaming for, for help and attention and, and love and, and all of the things. And the system is broken in the sense mm-hmm. that I had other siblings. They didn't, they didn't work to try to keep us together. Um, I, my cultural needs weren't met. And that's a whole nother, a whole nother podcast in itself, but there was times where I remember, and even as, as young as, you know, preschool and kindergarten, going to school, putting on every layer of clothing that I had, because I didn't know where I was going to go home to, to sleep. I never knew if I was going to my mom's, where I was going to a new foster home, if, um, or if there were going to be other children there. I, I, I never knew what was coming next. So my way of, of protecting myself or, and, and even in, as I, even as I started to get older, I would was still do that, you know, just layer and layer everything I had. Because when you move around that much, you know, you, you see the videos, the ads on TV with, you know, the child with the, the garbage bag, that is really truly often what it is like. Um, you know, it, it's whatever they feel like gathering. And unfortunately, the foster care system is so broken that um, there are some amazing, amazing foster parents out there. And then there's some, some not so amazing ones. And then you add children who have problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, let's, let's be real. I was, I had attachment issues. I had, you know, um, I had all kinds of behavioral issues because it was just crying out for whatever kind of attention, any attention was good attention. I didn't know no better. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I missed most of my second grade year in, in school. Like I couldn't read till I was 13 years old because wow. I, I mean, I could read, but not comprehend it and not read, definitely not read the way a normal 13 year old could read. Um, and I was just kind of pushed through the system because everybody felt sorry for me. You know, there, I, I didn't have a voice. And when I finally did get a voice, I got a, an advocate that, um, that started following me through the system. And, and she was a huge, made a huge, huge impact on my life and in my world. But it was 28 homes, three failed adoptive homes, and then was trafficked into, into an, a whole nother underground world that um, no human being should ever experience. Uh, but missing those key areas, like I remember coming home at times or having a social service worker pick me up at school with my stuff in my in a in a garbage bag, putting me in the car to take me to a new home, which meant going to a new school, mm. which meant creating new relationships and new, you know, and new everything. Like mm-hmm. there was there was no stability in that environment. And unfortunately the system, you know, if when you have a child who has issues and and foster parents do the best they can but you know they also have other children Mm -hmm. and and a lot of times the foster homes are overcrowded 
And yeah. so whatever child is acting up the most, whatever child is doing, you know, whatever, whatever, it, we were moved. And sometimes it was moved for my own safety because yeah. I wanted nothing more than to be with my mom and my dad. Yeah. That was all I wanted. And so I would move and they would move me from town to town. It wasn't even like it was just one town in this the city. It, they would move me across the state. Wow. And um, every town I would get to, I remember going to the library as a small child mm. or going and finding the closest phone book. And I would look up anybody at that time's my mom's last name or my dad's last name. And I would call every single one looking for my parents, trying to find them, um, which would cause all kinds of havoc because I had, a, there was a safety concern with my family. Mm. My mom had removed, my mom and dad removed me from the hospital. My mom was involved. And so was my dad at the time involved with a, a motorcycle game, um, Wow. Very big, popular motorcycle gang back in the seventies. <laughs> so you could, uh, uh, you know, put it, put two and two together there. And then she joined a, a religious cult that was mm. uh, really big in the early early eighties in Oregon, um, and uh, put me in and out of different kinds of a, a different kind of hell there where, you know, they, they had my mom convinced I was, I was possessed. I was all of yeah. these things. So then they, you know, their little experiments would create additional traumatic, traumatic things in my world and um, would cause different behavior, behavior issues. And then it was, you know, she's crazy. We've got to I'm, I'm sending her to, to foster care or um, the last straw before my mom actually lost full complete custody of me, I was riding my bike down this hill and it was raining and I got hit by a car and broke wow. my knee. And she was so intoxicated and so high on whatever drugs she was taking at that time that it took her five days to take me to the emergency room to have my medical injuries looked at. And then um, it wasn't even just to have them looked at. She literally dropped me off at the hospital. Oh, wow. And, and so I came back into the system again and she left the boyfriend. She followed all of the protocols that she was supposed to follow, got, um, got custody, custody of me back for just a very short time it was like a week two weeks maybe tops um and then I came back into the system again it was just a, a, a roller coaster um she'd do better for a little while she would try mm -hmm. and the system being so broken they couldn't offer her the help that she needed right to stay clean as well yeah and that's one thing uh we've done one, we've done several episodes on cults. So mm -hmm. I'll definitely link that up in the show notes. Actually, one mm -hmm. of the previous guests is that coming back on because she just wrote a book about the cult she had been in um, from a, she was born into a cult. Mm -hmm. uh, so very, very traumatic. And we've also done some on addiction and, and the system, the recent one we did, she was talking about how the system is so broken when it comes to treating addiction, where they'll just get people in to sober up 
And then they release them without actually mm-hmm. getting them the help they need and the stability they need to stay sober. So, you know, um, even though your mom did some really horrible things, uh, I have a little little compassion for her because she never had the opportunity to stay clean because no support. Hey, well, exactly. There is, um, there's no money in recovery. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is something that's kind of a, a hot topic in the recovery world right now, mm-hmm. but there is really, there's no money in the recovery. And if you think about that, if someone recovers, then there's no need for the services. Yeah. And then there's no, I mean, it's, 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 it's really grotesque, but the recovery is possible. Yeah. Some of my greatest friends have recovered from some amazing, amazing, you know, just like amazing human beings recovered from some of the most horrible addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel for her. Um, by the time, by the time I was in nine, 10 years old, the addictions had taken such a huge toll on her mental health mm-hmm. that her, her mental stability uh, was no longer there. You know, the, the psychosis had, had k- kicked in and set in and stayed. Yeah. Uh, stayed there. So that, that's something people don't realize is, you know, it start it, it takes such a huge toll on your physical and mental health. Um, it literally eats away at your brain, like, especially mm-hmm. depending on what substances you're using is how much it's really going to the faster it damages it, right? There are certain like people who do mess. Like it is literally that that is something like within like six months, it's now eating away at your whole uh brain and body. And and people don't realize is, you know, a multiple of things can trigger mental mental illness. So I have bipolar disorder, which anybody listening knows, and mine was more genetic and environmental, like trauma I went through as a child. But some people, if they have a severe addiction, it can cause such damage to your brain that you do develop a mental illness and it, it's not going to be it's it's not going to be a mild one <laughs> let's just put it that way yeah um yeah. so wow I, I i just i i gotta wonder like how did how did you survive what kind of coping mechanisms which i understand won't may not really be like positive ones coping mechanisms did you develop to to make it through that well the the attention seeking behavior was was the biggest one you know um and and not wanting to stay anywhere for long like Mm -hmm. I became so incredibly hyper vigilant of my surroundings I could read a room so well that depending on what was going on, like I knew where every exit was, how to get out of the car, how to, you know, where the bathroom was. I became so hypervigilant as a small child and um, attention seeking in the sense that I was so not accustomed to having anything stable everybody became mom, everybody Mm. became dad, everybody became auntie or cousin or, or, or this, because I didn't know any better. I didn't know any different. Um, And, you know, just 
just because they weren't blood related doesn't mean they didn't become, you know, long to lifetime friends or family members. And my, my best friend was my foster sister when I was 16 years old. Yeah. So, um, and you know, I'm in my late forties now we hung on to each other for that long, but some of those attention seeking behaviors as I became a teenager turned into sex yeah. and, and, and older men and what they could do for me and, and those kinds of, of, of behaviors. And so I was finally, I, you know, I got adopted um, and we moved to another state again to, for my safety, for fear that I was going to run away, go find my mom, go find my dad, you know, all these things. Um, moved to another state and and I did really well for about a year, year and a half. And um, then things kind of started to fall apart between my my adoptive parents. They they started having some some issues. And so I was like, I'm gone. Yeah. And um, I had went away as a to babysit one summer, and I met I met a gentleman that I thought I loved. Yeah, thought I loved. Came home from babysitting for the summer because I, I, I was away for it. Came home and made this grandioso plan that I was going to run away with him, and he was going to save me. And. Uh, he saved me right into the sex traffic world. Like I, um, and that was those, you know, coping mechanisms. I, they, I never really turned to drugs per se, they, like most, most children would have. Um, I was, I did drink a lot, mm-hmm. but I was never, um, would have never classified myself as an alcoholic or, you know, a heavy drug user. I, we all had our experimentation phase, yeah. but, um, mine was attachment in, in relationships. And, um, so I would find my self-worth, my self-value based on the relationship that I was in or was, was seeking or whatever attention seeking behavior I was having at the moment and, uh, almost died uh quite a few times actually in this in this underground world of um of trading women and and children and and men I I was not um it's not something that is just female which people don't Uh, think about they don't and it's and it's, and people, you know, I, I hear a lot of questions I get right now are like, well, why didn't you just leave? Well, sometimes you just can't leave. Yeah. You're, you're not able to leave and you're, you're groomed, you know, to this mm-hmm. being acceptable behavior and, and all of these things. And um, I remember about that time, pretty woman, I think had come out a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and having this dream like my my own knight in shining armor is going to come and save me and that wasn't the case I mean it would um I had to save myself I just escaped the situation myself and it was very scary very difficult yeah how did you manage to escape um 
it was it was an opportunity that just opened up. Um, I had I would save little bits of money here and there, and um, I had finally just made a decision that I wasn't I wasn't doing this anymore. I wasn't I was not I didn't want to be here, and um, I snuck and got a bus ticket. Um, I actually had it uh, several, but I, it was with some help of, of another organization that helped me get away yeah. and, and get out of the environment. Yeah, we, um, several years ago, I interviewed a woman who uh, runs a organization that helps uh, women and children who have been sex trafficked or, or trafficked period. Um, because you can be trafficked for multiple different things. You know, some people mm-hmm. are, are trafficked to basically be slaves for somebody's house and, and do all the things that they want somebody to do, which may or may not include sex. Um, and so she, she came on and she was talking about how they have a house, like a, a safe house for people who have mm-hmm. been trafficked. Uh, so, yeah, it is a, a serious problem. I've seen some videos where, um, you know, young girls are taking a TikTok video and you see somebody scoping them out in the background, um, or videos where they're making a TikTok video and somebody comes up and says like, Hey, this person has been watching you. Like, let's get you someplace safe. Uh, and I mean, thank God for technology, right? Like back when, when you were younger, when I was younger, <laughs> that didn't mm-hmm. exist, right? We didn't have cell phones. Uh, we definitely did not have cell phones with cameras, but we didn't have cell phones. I mean, the cell phones that they had were the clunky ones that were in somebody's car and you had to mm-hmm. make a lot of money to have one of those. <laughs> um, but thank God for technology because so many people are preventing trafficking because of technology or catching people that have trafficked somebody because of technology. I mean, still, it's a, it's a really serious problem. And, and I can, as a trauma response, I can relate to the attention seeking. I did for the longest time, try to find love and self-esteem and something else. And I, I grew up in a household that was not physically abusive, but it was emotionally and psychologically abusive. And like you said, if that's your norm, that's what you think is normal, right? Like you become mm-hmm. used to this sort of thing. And I didn't even know when I got into abusive relationship, because to me being, you know, psychologically and emotionally abused, that was normal. That's, that's what mm-hmm. happened. And I actually, even after I left that, that relationship, it ended up getting like physical after I left, I never realized I was, I was abused growing up until I took a domestic violence course. Cause I wanted to be like a mentor at a um, a shelter. And I had to take this course and I'm taking this course. I'm like, holy crap. I have been abused since I was a child. But like you said, I mean, I'm trying to relate it back to you is when that's your norm, you don't know any different. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how have you been able to heal from this? Cause that's, that's one thing they, they dropped the ball with you. You didn't get the support you need. You didn't get the healing you need. You bounced from house to house to house. And, and that was definitely not helping. It was years of therapy, years of mindset work, years of, um, of trauma work, 
of, um, you know, I, I've done some very similar to you. I've advocated in, in DV homes and, and have been, a, been an advocate. I have um, ran the suicide hotline. I've, you know, very, uh, various of other areas that I've, you know, the healing has been, it's an ongoing process. You don't ever fully completely heal. But the difference is you get to learn instead of it being, being a poor me, this is, Mm. you know, hear me cry. I get to look at what's happened to me and, and I get to acknowledge that it's happened. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't, isn't any more emotional, but who do I get to be now? Mm-hmm. Because, because of those things that have happened to me, I get to show up in our world in, in a space and hold space for other men, other women, other children and hold a belief that it doesn't matter where you come from, you can achieve anything, you can become anything, you can set a goal and have it. And it wasn't until I got like super deep into, into both into my therapy work and, and I started hiring coaches and working with other coaches and other mentors that I started to get, to, you know, I always had this vision, this dream, I'm going to be on big stages around the world. I'm going to be talking about sharing my story and impacting other people. But it wasn't until I started getting really clear on why that was so important to me that the realization of these, yes, this horrible shit happened, yeah. but who do I get to be today? How do I get to show up in the world today? We all have some form of story. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we just don't know what the story is, but how do I get to show up in the world? And so I get to create my own destiny. I get to create my own, my, you know, I get to create my own tomorrow. I get to create my own today. We get to create our own. And the first 20 years of my life sucked. Yeah, They really did. They sucked. But guess what? I'm here today. And because those first 20 years of my life, they sucked, I get to help other men and women step into their purpose and I get to help them. And that is probably the most fulfilling, like some of my favorite phone calls, some of my favorite things that I get to experience is when I'm working with a client or I'm working with a group of people and someone comes up and they start sharing their wins. Mm -hmm. Like they really getting really clear with my self-image and understanding how those years of my life impacted who I was and how I was showing up in the world and how to rewrite the story. So getting really clear, like it happened, I can acknowledge it, but now who do I get to be? How do I get to show up and rewrite my own story because of that? And, you know, and it's, some people call it a new coping mechanism. Some people call it doing the shadow work. Some people call it removing the, the paradigms, you know, recreating the self-image because our self-image comes from the things that happen to us mm-hmm. in our outside world. It's the programming we shove down in our, in our, in our brain the, you know, for the longest time, because the sexual trauma started in foster care, in my mom's home, 
with her many boyfriends and the cult and the motorcycle gang, you know, all. So it just carried on until mm. I got the help that I needed to realize that this is not, and, and who do I get to be now? Yeah. I undoing that program. Yeah. Programming. Yeah. Hard. <laughs> and, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be hard. It can be emotionally draining, but with the mm. right supports in place, I'm working with people that know how to truly know how to, and not just textbook. And this is one of the things that I get so frustrated with is society. Yes, I have the textbook education, Mm -hmm. but we learn from real everyday human life experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, your doctor has a textbook education. But there's a reason why he has to do four years of of residency before he gets to go out and practice because he has to have the real life experiences. Mm -hmm. And some of the best healers, some of the best coaches are those that are leading by example. Yeah, exactly. I would say when I said hard, I mean like the emotionally taxing part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But once once you start healing that piece and forgiving yourself like that's mm-hmm. huge yeah because we put a huge as as trauma survivors I don't even like to use the term victim as trauma survivors yeah. we put a lot of blame on ourselves mm-hmm. for the way things happened mm-hmm. you know or or even our responses with with people we put this we create an, a story in our head as to why it happened that way. And it's, we usually point the blame at ourselves. Yeah. So learning to forgive ourselves for that is, is so important. Yeah. And I agree with you about the stories. That's the whole premise of the podcast, right? Is sharing stories so we can shift people's perspectives. And I, I had a, an avid listener say to me, you know, I may not uh, relate to some of the stories that you share, but I always learn something from these women. I always take away something from these women. It helps open my eyes a little bit. And those stories, like you've said multiple times, so important. And now everybody may not feel comfortable sharing their story. It's completely understandable, but when they hear your story, even if they can't relate, they're going to take something away from it. Right. And now maybe they'll open their eyes. Cause like, People are screaming because like, I'm not even going to get into like all the political bullshit when it comes to that, but people are screaming about how broken the foster care system is. Mm -hmm. They've been screaming about it for decades. Nothing gets done. It doesn't change. It stays broken and continue. And, and you have a, a survivor story. And, and obviously I agree with you all survive. I mean, survivor is the right, but some people may stay stuck in that place and never come out repeating the same patterns over and over because that's what they know. Well, it, it is. So um, I may share just a, a, an example. So one of the things I was the most angry about was my mom was gone. Mm-hmm. My dad was gone. My mom was gone. I didn't have a family. I, you know, there was poverty. I was in and out of foster care. You know, I, I just that I held on to that anger. So then 
it was, I'm going to break this generational curse. I'm going to do things different. I'm going to break the curse. I'm going to be different. I'm going to do all the things. So you could say my addiction turned to working, to mm. providing, to giving all of those things to my children that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't realize at the moment when my older children were, were much younger, what I didn't see is I was repeating the cycle just differently mm. because I was there providing, but I was not emotionally there. Gotcha. I was not physically there because in my head, I had to work. I had to do this. I had, I, I became so addicted uh, in my early twenties um, and even into my early thirties um, to working the corporate world, to being somebody yeah. that the people that really mattered to me at home weren't getting the best of me, weren't getting mm. all of me. And I actually, I was, I took a program. Um, I've always had, you know, coaches and mentors and I was, I was working with a, with another coach and um, we're doing this exercise and I was just like, oh my gosh, I just repeated the same cycle, but it Mm. just looks different. Yeah. It looks, it it looks different, but you know, and and now as my children are adults and we've had conversations and I'm like, I, I did the best with what I, what I thought I knew I was supposed to be doing. And if I could change it, I would. Yeah, we have a great relationship, but it was interesting to see how we have these conversations about breaking generational cycles and generational curses. But are you right? Are you maybe the physical's not right there, but are you still creating a negative impact? in that manner. So it was really one of the things when I work with clients is getting really clear on what do they want. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's more than just, I want to make a million dollars. Yeah. Because most people, 98% of the world, the money that is not the real goal. Mm-hmm. It's what the money they think the money can buy. Oh, and so a lot of times it's not even that. A lot of times it's, it's not even that money is just one piece of it. Um, and, and you can have, you can have a lot of money man, and be miserable. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> money doesn't buy happiness. There's actually a, a study that they did now that's not completely true. So up to a certain point, money does buy happiness. Cause you need to have, I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy needs, but you need to have your basic needs met before you can meet your higher needs. So the article talked about how you have to be to a point where you're living quote unquote comfortably, where you can pay your bills. You're not hungry. You're not struggling. And then after that, that's where money doesn't buy happiness because, (laughs) you know, you are, you're already comfortable, but the people have to have their basic needs met not to be struggling before that could really be a, considered a thing well but that so you can you can actually there's there's a piece of that that even goes goes further so like pu- pure joy true joy comes from the inside 
that comes from us. And so until we can live in a joyful expectation and Mm. be truly, deeply, truly happy with us, it just takes work. I mean, it's it's not a, not everybody, not every day is roses and sunshine. Mm -hmm. Some days you wake up and go, fuck, I don't want to do this today. (laughs) I mean, that's real life, but how do you change it? How do you change the energy? So you have the joyful expectation to have the gratitude in what you have right here and right now. Fear itself, there's like four, there's actually, I think it's seven, um, but a couple of the top ones, fear of poverty, mm-hmm. fear of loss of someone you love, fear of loss of your own, your own life. Uh, I mean, those are like three of the, the, the main ones and fear of poverty has been created by external circumstances in, mm-hmm. in the world, because if you're poor, somewhere, someone has created a money story. Somewhere, some, someone has said, if you don't have a lot of money, then you're not worth it. Mm-hmm. Then you don't have the value. You don't have this. You don't have that. Um, fear of not being able to pay your bills or have your basic necessities met. Um, that is a very real life fear that people are facing. And more and more people are facing that right now as, yeah. as costs are, are increasing. I mean, it's almost $7 a gallon where I live for gas right now. Oh, like, I was complaining insane. of almost $5 a gallon here. But holy it, it is, it, it is insane. But um, if you can replace that, so that I'll just, I had a situation where I had to sell something one time really dear to me. Mm. And I was so upset over it. Just like, this is the one thing I've bought for myself. I can't believe I'm having to do this. And instead of being coming from a place, my, and my girlfriend called me out on it. She said, Stormy, there are a lot of people out there that would have given anything to have that item to sell or to have something to sell. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I changed the story, and changed my feelings around it and changed to a place of gratitude and a place of, of you're right. Wow. I am so lucky. I am so lucky that I had this. I'm so glad I made this decision to purchase this many years ago. And, and, um, the whole energy, my whole energetics changed Mm -hmm. And everything else started to change because I was coming from a different energetic vibration of, and uh, instead of a, a place of fear, how am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to do this? How, where am I going to, where is this coming from? What's next? As soon as I started changing my vibration and changing my energy and being grateful, like what I really have, um, all of a sudden money started to flow back in. Mm-hmm. money brings that external happiness like I tell people when I work with clients when you pay a bill if it's the bill you hate <laughs> right thank you on it thank you paid I had a car I hated this car I hated it had a 22 percent interest rate on it holy crap <laughs> yeah when I was younger absolutely hated this car and I could not seem to get out from underneath this car payment and I used to just bitch and mine and complain and all the things about this car. 
And pretty soon I started putting thank you paid. And every time I'd get in the car, I'm so glad I have this car. So many people right. don't have a car. I, you know, I started changing the story, creating a new story around it. Guess what? I ended up paying the car off three years early because all of a sudden the money just started flowing from areas I didn't anticipate. Yeah. And so money, money buys happiness, but it, 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 it buys comfort. Mm-hmm. It buys comfort. The happiness comes from the experience in the comfort. The joy comes from the insight. Yeah. I, I like to perspect my van is a piece of shit, but it's paid off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And every time I get into that piece of shit, um, I'm just like, you know what? A lot of people can't say that their vehicles paid off. And a lot of people, I mean, it's old. Um, but we've decided like, I don't need a new one right now. Like there's no need. I don't need it. Like it works. The one I have works. It, It does what it needs to do. It gets me from A to B. I don't need a brand new car. Uh, <laughs> but you know, sometimes I'm driving in it and all I can think is like, when I was a single mom living in poverty on snap benefits, I mean, back then it was called food stamps on food stamps, getting in this, the car I had at that time, like I couldn't even afford if something went wrong with it. Right. Like I had mm-hmm. nothing to my name and I'm like, if something goes wrong with this piece of shit van, like I at least can go and get it fixed and I'm good. Um, we always take them in for their checkup. So, you know, they always catch anything before it goes bad, but yeah, I have that, that gratitude. Sometimes I'm like, I hate this piece of shit, but then I'm like, I'm so thankful I have it. <laughs> right. Right. But it, and it changes, it changes the energy around it. Yeah. So it's like you, you, and you can pull that back to the traumatic experiences of, you know, I hate the fact that I had to deal with this shit. I hate the fact yeah. that I was that I was trafficked. I hate the fact that there's still child abuse. I hate the fact there's a broken foster home. The foster system is broken at a level of one, there's not enough people. Mm -hmm. The rules and regulations were created back in the fifties and most of them don't apply to, to today. Um, and there's not enough services and supports in place to not just support the parents, but to also support the foster parents and to support the caseworkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, the, and, and then it, it moves, moves up. I mean, the, the ICWA laws didn't come into effect until the mid seventies. And then there was the, you know, sibling uh, separation. I mean, there's five of us out there um, that we found through, uh, my brother found me, my youngest brother found me first. And then I ended up finding out I had four other siblings, uh, on the other side of the family. So it was just like the system's broken uh, and it, it's still broken. I've, I've advocated it at the state level and at the congressional level on, on how broken the system, the system is and the things that need to need to change. Yeah. I love how you have turned your mindset around, um, because, you know, as we've mentioned, some people can get stuck in that cycle, um, because they never get to the point where they make a mindset mindset shift. And, and, and it's not even like their fault. It is because they, they never knew 
right? <laughs> like they never knew this is the norm, right? I mean, people get stuck in poverty. We were, I was just talking to my spouse about this last night. People get stuck in poverty because their parents lived in poverty. They believe that is what they are meant to be because that's their norm. So I, I love that you had this mindset shift, but as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? Just know that you, you are capable of, of anything. If you can imagine it, <clears throat> if you can bring it, the imagination, bring it, the image to your mind, you can accomplish it. And it really, truly just takes a decision. Does it mean it may happen tomorrow? Maybe not. But if you keep going, it will finally come to fruition. And that, and it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. Mm -hmm. The only thing that matters is your belief in you. And when you don't have belief in you, borrow someone else's belief in you. Yeah. Go find somebody, seek somebody out, seek a a podcast such as this, seek a mentor, seek a coach, seek a, a, a network of, of people who are going to continue to lift you up. And if you have an idea, something you want to do, and the five closest people around you tell you, you can't do it. You're not good enough. Who do you think you are? Do it and do it 10 times better than you thought you could. Yeah. Because you will become the five closest people. So why it's like people that ask for business advice, don't ask for business advice from the person whose business is failing, ask for business advice Mm. from the person who is succeeding. Yeah. So So what other people think you should do doesn't matter. If you want it, if you can imagine it, if you can see it, you can feel it, go after it 100% and don't stop until you accomplish it. I, I find myself having to tap into those people that believe in me more than I believe in myself. Cause, uh, as people listening to the podcast know, uh, my goal is to get into a PhD program. Um, I'll be applying for them this fall. And sometimes I'm like, I get in my own head because my professors have said like, these are the expectations if you're applying and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I haven't done any of those things. And then I have these people that are like, you can do it. I believe you're going to get in. Yeah. I think you're great. And it's going to be awesome. And these are coming from people who actually have gotten into PhD programs. And they're like, I think you're going to have no issue. And I'm like, all right, I'm tapping into you. Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> Cause like you said, those people that are close to you, sometimes like, sometimes they're, they're not encouraging and, and maybe you need new people's. Uh, <laughs> you, you might need, you need those people that are going to like lift you up and be like, I support you. I got this. Do you see yourself in that PhD program? Yeah. I, I mean, I absolutely, I'm like, I, I think I, I may not meet the wickets that they typically expect, but I also am not 18 years old or not 18, 24. I don't remember how old people are when they go into a PhD program. I'm not 24. I have decades of life experience that 24 year olds typically don't have. And mm-hmm. so even if I don't meet, meet the um, typical quote unquote, typical criteria, I have this life experience that can provide a lot of insight that these 24 year olds probably don't have. 
And so I feel like that's my strength right there. So what, what is the feeling that you have when you graduate with your PhD? Pride, excitement. Um, I don't know how to put it in words, but like, I want to be a professor and, and just, um, yes, you can be a professor with a master's. I graduated with a master's mm-hmm. in the spring, but PhD like opens more doors. Like you're kind of limited to community college and some four-year colleges. If you only have a master's, they just have those criteria that you have to meet. It will open doors that I, I can see myself teaching young psychology students and providing them with insight that somebody who doesn't have my experiences just can't. Because you talked about the textbook, right? You talked about, you can have this textbook, you know, this textbook um, education, but if you're not learning from other people who have had those experiences, it's only gonna get you so far. So it pumps, I love teaching. I love to every job I've had teaching has always been the thing. And so it gets me excited to know, like, when I graduate with this PhD, now I can tap into those minds. And before that too, because like uh, the great thing is you, they give you typically give you uh, money to teach, right? While you're in a PhD program, you'll get money to be like a teaching assistant. Typically uh, from what I heard, you actually end up teaching and the professor's just there to like make sure nothing blows up. So it gets me so pumped. I get so pumped up about teaching. It really just, uh, it's always like, it's always lit me up. And uh, so hold that energy. Yeah. Hold that energy, hold that vibration, that excitement. Just let your body feel with that as you do your application. Yeah. Create that excitement, that energy as you're filling out the application, instead of filling out of the application, don't fill the application out with the energy of, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to get this. I, you know, yeah. I don't need, fill your energy, your body with the feeling about how excited you are. Yeah. And that energy will transfer to the way you write when you fill out your application. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I know some of my professors have tried to uh, try to be like the devil's advocate and just prepare me for the worst. And, and for a little while, I allowed that to get in my head. And then uh, one of my friends is like, I really want you to talk to this professor. I think she's going to really change your perspective. And I think that she's going to she's going to give you like that little spark that you need. And that professor is like, what's your GPA? I'm like 4.0. And she's like, I got into a PhD program with a (laughs) 3.76. She's like, I had never been published any of these things. She was like, I understand people are trying to, you know, prepare you for the worst. She was like, I'm not telling you you're going to get in, but what I'm telling you is you're being too hard on yourself. You absolutely have a lot to offer. And so I already started like writing my about me because they want a personal statement saying like, why you think you would be an asset. And I'm just like laying it out. I am good with people. I have a podcast. I've been doing this for a long time. So when we're doing research, I can work with people. It's great. Mm-hmm. I have this, I do my uh, research interest is mental illness stigma. I've experienced it. Like mm-hmm. This is real life. When I'm presenting on my research, I come from a perspective of like, 
you can tell I've been through this, like not to where I make it so personal, but you can tell I've been through this because I know on a level that somebody who's never been through it hasn't. So yeah, I'll keep those vibes, but uh, Stormy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.